You're listening to Kitchen Table Finance. Join Dave Shotwell and Nick Nauta as they cut through the complexity of financial planning and serve bites of investment advice that are both personal and practical. Hey, Dave, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Nick. How are you? Splendid. Thank you for asking. Splendid. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Splendid. So Excellent. as promised, we are going to uh, talk about my personal best and worst money moves after we uh, put you through the winger last time, right? Yeah, I told you you'd get your turn. <laughs> so here we are. All good things come in circles. Is that what they say? That's Is right. that a thing? Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. So yeah. I guess let's just jump right in. I my um I'll give you my worst, Dave. This is the first thing that came to my mind, and only you can be the judge of, of how it worked out. This is what I've shared. Sure. When I first got out of college, it was 2005, and uh, Michigan was already into the recession that hit the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. So jobs for finance majors in Michigan were not plentiful. I had a about to be one-year-old child at the time. And so we weren't looking to make any big moves and move out of Michigan. We wanted to be close to family. And so Mm -hmm. I started this trek of trying to find a real job, right? And so I eventually got hired about three, maybe four months later to become a financial planner. Yeah, it was, you know, exciting. First real job, got to buy a new suit, the whole thing. Um, Ended up moving to Lansing as a result of that. And what I did not really do too well is read the fine print of what this job entailed in a couple different ways. And so the first thing that happens when you become a financial planner is you got to start passing some tests. And these tests, of course, come with some charges that you obviously have to pay for. So the study materials, the classes, if you want to take them, the test itself. And so here I was fresh out of college with a one-year-old by then. And I had to basically put my entire financial planning curriculum test stuff on a credit card. Basically (laughs) maxed it out, right? Yeah. so I started a job negative before I even got paid and luckily passed the test in a couple of months. So that wasn't too big of a deal. But the deal was, or at least I thought what the deal was, is that they were going to then reimburse me if oh. I passed those tests. And yeah. it turns out that was not necessarily the case. And so now I had a big credit card payment every month. And in the financial planning world where I came through, which is really the insurance world, basically on a commission track. And so we needed to then fresh out of college with all of that knowledge obtained by passing some tests, start selling stuff to people in order to get paid. Right, right. The, uh, the bitter irony of having to get started in a financial advising career by doing something that you would never, like if a client came to you and asked you, yeah. Or should I should, should I follow up on credit card in hopes that uh, it works out? Yeah. Like, like, is that part of the test? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, seriously. Yeah, interesting. Well, you know, luckily enough, I was a college kid still at that point, and so I was mm-hmm. used to eating ramen and not having a whole lot mm-hmm. of disposable income, anyways. Yeah. But, um, so I did that for like six months and started to kind of have a couple of sales until the point where it just kind of all 
came crashing down. I wasn't making enough money and it wasn't going to work out. The stipend that they gave me was Mm -hmm. running out. The credit cards were up there and the rent payments were coming due. I even got an eviction notice at one point. Oh, wow. So I had to, then I thankfully got a job that was with much more stability because of the licenses that I had. Um, mm-hmm. moved into the bank and had an actual salary so I could start paying things down. And, you know, I, I learned yeah. a great lesson, a couple of different lessons. You know, one is making sure that you have enough income and stable income to cover the bills and the things that you have. And living below your means is a part of that, not getting into that situation. You know, I've never been in that situation since that time where I had credit card debt that I couldn't afford or really any credit card debt that I was getting charged an interest rate on. I think once I, you know, a year or two later when I finished paying off the credit cards, I didn't have any I haven't had any credit card debt since that time that I've mm-hmm. actually paid interest on because I remember that feeling of having right. credit cards, watching the interest, getting the eviction notice and being like, oh man, what? Yeah. Do? Yeah. <laughs> Scary. Scary. So, but sometimes that's the best teacher, right? It only took one lesson, you know, and I'm lucky because <laughs> some people, it takes a lot of lessons. And so right. one is all it took. And so that was kind of the end of that. And then like, I would say the other lesson that I kind of learned from that experience was Make sure you're reading the fine print and thinking things through, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting that both of our worst stories have a similar thread to them in that we we kind of only saw the upside to the situation at the time we entered yeah. into it without really considering the potential downside. Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. What I would yeah. say to that too is we both kind of made emotional decisions, right? Mm -hmm. Here I was, I graduated college, worked really hard to graduate with honors. And now I can't find a job, right? It didn't just show up at my doorstep. And at the time I was uh, uh, moving the construction road signs that you see, like Mm -hmm. the reduced speed zone. And I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of lifting one of those up, but they are heavy. heavy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And throwing um, orange barrels around. We had this sea uh, of orange barrels and I spent an entire month just hucking orange barrels yeah. from the bottom to the top of the pile. And yeah. so it was a lot of it was just a motion of, well, I, you know, I got this job. It's a real job and I need to do it because, you know, I don't want to be throwing orange barrels for the rest of my life. Right. You know, there's an interesting alternative lesson here that, you know, maybe isn't as readily apparent, but in retrospect is, and I don't think this applies to, to my situation that I described, is that really what you were doing was kind of taking an extreme investment in yourself that paid off down the road, right? Yeah. Well, you know, and, I was at a young age and taking a risk for sure. <laughs> right. And, but, you know, and, and so, yeah, your, your main takeaway is you never wanted to be in that position again, but you know, maybe a less extreme version of that is is actually not necessarily a bad lesson for, you know, it's no different than than people taking student loans to improve their education, you know, if done if done intelligently. You know, betting on yourself is uh is not a bad thing when you're not paying fourteen percent interest on your credit card with no yeah. No way out or, you know, no, no, no easy way out. So, you know, you, you, you maybe, maybe went too far on the, on the spectrum there, but the, but on the other hand, it did work out, right? I mean, you're here. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're glad to have you. Later, so, right? Yeah, yeah. So, well, it's interesting that you bring that up too, because one of the things that I thought was, yeah, I did kind of take a risk, and and I wish I would have done it differently or known more about it, but it did afford me the ability because I did take a similar risk where I went out on my own. I left the mm-hmm. crane and then I was at for seven years with the salary and the consistent clients and started mm-hmm. my own business. And what I, what I did was I made sure that I had a bunch of money in the bank yeah. and I was able to cover if it didn't go according to plan and, and my income I knew was going to go down and it went down by maybe, right. maybe a quarter of what I had before the previous year. And so, but I was ready for that. Right. And so that yeah. was a lesson yeah. in terms yeah. of being ready for it, but also taking risk is a good thing, right? Like right. In some yeah. cases, and it was, yourself pays off. It was a more mature version of what you had done previously. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I, I, I would echo that too. Yeah. That's good. All right. On to some of the good ones. Yeah. Well, <laughs> got to have a little sunshine after the rain, right? That's right. That's right. Uh, so I, I actually threw a couple down here and, and some of them are that, well, you know, the, the thing about decisions is 99% of them involve finances in some way, shape mm-hmm. or form. So some of them are <laughs> closely tied to financial decisions. And so the first one, as I was kind of thinking about this uh, podcast, knowing it was coming up and doing some prep, as I started to think back, I thought, you know, this was really dumb. I can't believe I did this. I can't <laughs> believe I got away with this. But in 2008, I was working for Fifth Third. And, uh, you know, so the the peak of the financial crash, things are coming down. And one of the options we had in our 401k is to actually put your 401k into, like Fifth Third stock was an investment option, for mm-hmm. it, which, by the way, they later got sued for. Um, they actually used to force us to put our match in there, which... Yeah, I always used to I, take out. <laughs> I I worked at uh, Fifth Third's twin uh, at National City, and yeah. uh, very very similar four hundred one k arrangement. And we'll come back to that here in a minute. <laughs> Go ahead, though. So when I st- in two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, when things started to go down, I stopped moving my matching funds instead of like selling the Fifth Third stock as soon as it came in. I just let it start accumulating because the stock was down, you know, 50, 60, at some point, 70%. And then I started transferring my non-stock portion into the stock once it dropped below $15 and then more at 10 to the point where it was, when it got below $5, I converted, I moved everything into fifth third stock. Mm-hmm. And to take it a step further, it hit about $3. This was after I left the bank. And then I converted everything into a Roth IRA because there was oh, not geez. a whole lot left yeah. anymore. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the silver lining and, and really in hindsight, the, the luckiest part of this is it ended up working out. Fifth third did not go bankrupt. Yeah. They actually, their stock price rebounded. I ended up selling somewhere around $30 a share a couple of years later. And so, mm-hmm. got, you know, I ended up making a good deal of money on that transaction. But, you know, and I was in at the time, I remember thinking I'm 20 years old. If my entire 401k portfolio goes to zero and I restarted it all tomorrow, I really mm-hmm. haven't lost that much except for maybe mm-hmm. a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And that was the, like the thought process. What did not occur to me and the advice I would give myself now is 
you know, you idiot, not only do you work at this institution, <laughs> so if they go bankrupt and you lose your 401k, like that's a double win. Like right. this is common sense stuff right. that we tell all of our employees or all right. of our clients. Right. But well, here I was and I, you know, pulled the trigger and it ended up working out. But I, I definitely got lucky about it. That was more, way more luck than skill. Boy, I hope you don't tell this story to clients. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, in, in, in retrospect, yeah, it all, it, it, it ends up working out very well and you made good money and the, the moving it into a Roth at the bottom of the market is brilliant. I love that. Yeah. Uh, or doing the conversion. And, but you know, like I said, I, I worked at, at Fifth Third's twin, really. They're both mm-hmm. regional oh, banks yeah. out of Ohio and they had the same arrangement. Their match went into the company stock mm-hmm. in the 401k. You were free to move it out but most yep. people didn't and they knew oh, most yeah. people wouldn't. And the bank gets in, they get some tax incentive, you know, it works out more in their favor. Plus it creates more demand for their stock. There's all kinds of reasons why they do that. But people were, they, they banked on the fact people would probably not move stuff out. And I remember talking to bank staff about it. I left in 2006. The bank went, was, like I said, Fifth Third's twin in a way except the outcome during the financial crisis was very different. Mm-hmm. Where Fifth Third and National City both came down substantially during the financial crisis, Fifth Third got down to around $3 a share and rebounded, right? Right. National right. City ended up basically selling themselves to PNC at like around $2 a share when it had been 40-something, you know, yeah. years before. And I've often thought about some of my former coworkers that, maybe didn't do anything with that. Yeah. Uh, You know, but we shouldn't downplay the fact that in just about every financial decision, there's an element of luck, right? Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. You know, well, it's interesting now, as I tell the story, I have never gone back to look at like, if I had just kept it invested in like the normal Mm -hmm. allocation, you know, obviously an aggressive allocation at that point, how much Mm -hmm. better off, would I have been doing what I did with fifth third stock versus the normal mm. allocation? My guess is there would not be a whole lot of difference in terms of where I ended up versus where I could have well, potentially ended up. I think we now have our um, summer internship research project. <laughs> there so uh, stay tuned for that because that, that, well, that poses an interesting question. Afraid to find out the answer, maybe. That's why I haven't really researched. <laughs> yeah, no, we'll we'll do we'll do the work for you. We'll do the math. Oh, perfect, perfect. All right. <laughs> All right. So so so, what else has has been uh, good decision? So making? the only other one that kind of stuck out to me, you know, we bought our current house almost eight years ago in 2015, and this is another one of those where it was not skill, it was not me looking at the housing market predicting where it was going to go. It was just kind of, we outgrew our house and it was time to buy another house. And so why it ended up being such a good deal for us is, and at the time we had to go above the asking price of mm-hmm. multiple offers. And back then this was 2015. That was not very common, right? You know, I was thinking going into it, I was thinking, well, we'll offer, you know, less than the asking price for a lot of these. And we ended up going over because we fell in love with this house but the interesting thing, you know, seven, almost eight years later is that the timing of it worked out perfectly because we were able to refinance a couple of times. 
and, and to me, that's way more important than what's happened to the value. Obviously, the value of the housing market has gone way up. And so the value mm-hmm. of our house has gone way up. But more importantly, I locked in at this ridiculously low interest rate for 30 years. And so that's just one thing that I just don't have to worry about anymore because we intend on staying here for a long, long time. So, you know, it's just, I just look at what's going on in the housing market right now and the struggle that people have of Mm -hmm. selling a house with a low interest rate and buying another one. But just keep in mind, things are going to change over time. Mm -hmm. And it's really more about, you know, if you're buying, you know, buying and selling in the short term is probably going to cause some people some trouble. Yeah. If you don't have a long term outlook. But if you're going to go out and buy a house for the long term, I think it makes sense. And just finding your long term forever house, if you plan on being somewhere for a while, just makes a ton of sense terms of how that all kind of worked out. But again, it was luck, right? It was just a, mat- a, hap- a well, matter of circumstance of where we were at. There's some, there's a lot of interesting little things in there. It, 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 it may have been luck in the short run, but yeah, when your attitude is that you're buying this house, not as an investment, but as a home, you know, there's not as big a downside risk when you think about it in those terms. Right. And and another, like, it's never going to feel right. I mean, maybe, maybe if everything's cratered, you know, if you were able, if you knew you were able to buy a house in 2008, you might have had a pretty good inkling you were making a good deal. But, you know, most of the time, prices are, have gone up. Most of the time, prices have gone up recently. And I always hear people say, well, I'm just waiting till, till things come down a little bit, whether they're talking about stocks or houses or, I don't know, pick your thing. You know, and with both houses and the stock market in 2015, if you had decided it was too expensive then and waited, boy, you would have found out what more expensive looked like. Yeah. (laughs) You know, so, and so the fact that you were looking out not three years, not five years, but tens and twenties of years smooths that out. So it doesn't really matter. You're not going to, you're not going to look back and say, boy, you know, you're not going to look back uh, in 2040 and say, boy, if we had just waited till fall of 2016, boy, we would have gotten a steal, you know? Right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'm making that date up. Not that that has any (laughs) real relevance, but you know what I mean? We just held off for something. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, yeah, it is interesting how it works and, and how you frame things and, and how you put them into context, yeah. right? Like it's never been, the housing decision was never an investment decision for us, right? Like we're never looking to mm-hmm. make money off of it. And I, you know, whether or not we sell someday, who knows, you know, it's all relative to, you know, you know, where we're at and, and what we want to do, but it's never like, I'm not planning on having a bunch of equity that I'm going to pull out of my house at some point in the future, right? Because that's probably just going to go into another house in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, yeah. So. Sounds like you've been doing financial planning for people for a while. Oh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. So, <laughs> speaking of that, the last one I'll give you, Dave. I, I came up with three. So when I and we talked about this one a little bit already. When I started my own business and then mm-hmm. joining um, Shuttle Rudder Bear and joining you, you know, I took a risk at the time to do something that I loved and I believed in. And that is something that I didn't know what the outcome was going to be. And I didn't know if I was going to end up making more money or, 
you know, making any money, but I knew that I would never be able to look back and just <laughs> not be, you know, and be happy that I didn't try that or I didn't make that move. And, and you know, most importantly, just the freedom and flex- flexibility it gave me over my time and being able to do what I do and being able to do something that I love every day, even if I didn't make as much money as before. Right. Like, the fact that I can do something that I enjoy every single day, I could do it forever, right? Well, yeah. until, until, until they kick the crazy old guy out of here. But <laughs> much longer than the, you know, the yeah. normal 65 or 60, you know, I, I plan on being here for a long time. And so just that alone of being able to do something that you love and believe in is so much more important than the money side of it. And the funny thing is, my situation and everybody's situation that I've known that has gone this route usually ends up making more money in the end anyways, because it's mm-hmm. an amazing thing that happens when you do something that you love and believe in is people will come find you. Yeah. Well, and whether you, whether you make more money or not, I've, I can't remember anyone that I've worked with who made career decisions for the right reasons that mm-hmm. ended up regretting it. Yeah. You know, if, if it's, reduce stress or just a more fulfilling role, even if the money's not there, if you're making that decision for the right reasons, the money will adjust. Whether right. you whether you end up making it up, like you say, you know, where people will find you and you end up being profitable, or you realize that, hey, I'd rather go without, you know, that extra vacation or you know, I don't need as fancy of a car if it means I can do the things I want to do on a day-to-day basis. Absolutely. You know, and it's not no necessarily about the money or making more money. You know, we, you know, we're blessed and lucky to live in a country where, you know, making money is a pretty, you know, it's a thing that everybody has the ability to do, but in order to be able to do something you believe in, even if you don't make as much money, it's going to be mean so mm-hmm. much more for your well-being than making more money, right? And so that's some of the things that I think about with a decision like this. And and we've helped clients make similar decisions and do things in their lives mm-hmm. that really help them get to this, this idea of, Hey, I've got enough, right? I don't need to just chase dollars because I have enough and and having this sufficiency mindset. And this is actually um, another preview of an upcoming podcast is the book that I read called the soul of money and and just Mm -hmm. this idea of having a sufficiency mindset. And this is, you know, really what comes down to in terms of finding a job that you love and doing it and making more than what you need, right? And, th- and that's a subjective number, so. Good. Any other lessons you want to hit on that were takeaways from these? We touched on them all? Uh, I think we definitely did, you know, I, in terms of, you know, all the good the good and the bad, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just making sure that you're making decisions. And, and, and I guess the biggest thing I would say too is, even some of the worst financial decisions I've made ended up, I'm grateful that I had them because they taught me very important lessons that have led me to live a better life, right? So everybody's going to make mistakes. Everybody's going to have a bad financial outcome at some point. It's not necessarily whether or not it happens to you. It's what you do from there, right? What are, what are the lessons? What are the takeaways? How do you adjust your behavior so that it doesn't happen again? That's only going to make you stronger. That's only going to help you build the life and and the financial plan that you want. Good stuff. Yeah. Thanks, Dave.
Yeah, Appreciate it, it. Hopefully our listeners uh, took something away from both of our best and worst personal money moves. And uh, for sure, we would, if you're out there and, and have one that you'd like to share with us, we'd love to yeah. hear them. Uh, shoot us an email at info at srbadvisors.com. Dave, as always, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Nick. I'll talk to you later. Gather around and follow the Kitchen Table Finance Podcast to learn about money and simple ways you can invest right now. You can find more practical advice at srbadvisors.com and contact the team for personal planning by emailing info at srbadvisors.com.